All right, we're in Ezekiel. We're in chapter 38. We're working our way through the first part of the chapter. And um, this will be the last week that we're in the opening verses, and then we'll start to pick up steam a little bit. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. It's going to be God versus Gog. It sounds like one of those worldwide wrestling federation matches, you know, but uh, this one's pretty one sided. Ezekiel was told to prophesy against him, and he meant against Gog, the captain of these would-be conquerors. We spent a long time talking about who Gog is and all of that. We decided that uh, the word Gog is really a title like Caesar or Kaiser or uh, Pharaoh. He's the captain of this host that's going to come down against Israel in the last days. And uh, once we read into this, this is why I'm calling him Captain Hooked. Because uh, God's going to put a hook in his jaw and draw him down, uh, lead him out. Now, we've seen the participants in this end times invasion. We've discussed the various theories as to its timing, choosing as our current favorite around the middle of the seven year great tribulation. Now we're wanting to get into some of the other details. And so we pick it up actually in verse three. Uh, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Uh, God is active in the affairs of human history. He raises up nations that serve his purposes. He sees that nations are destroyed to serve his purposes. What are his purposes? Well, one important one is to discipline his chosen nation, Israel. Keep that in mind as you see the Lord dealing with Gog and his allies. Bear in mind that Uh, These end times prophecies and events have a lot to do with the nation of Israel uh, and bringing them to a point where they will recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Him who they once rejected and sent to be crucified, they will recognize. And God is working through history, disciplining them to bring them to that point of recognition. Verse 4, I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. God will turn Gog around. The captain of this host will be heading in a different direction when God will put hooks into his jaws and lead him out. A common practice in warfare of those days actually was for the conqueror to literally put giant hooks through the jaws of the captives, through your jawbone under your tongue and, and whatnot. Then they would chain them together and they would lead them along wherever they were taking them and bring them into their capital city and parade them uh, as trophies in front of the people. And so uh, that was a literal practice. Uh, God is, is using a play on words, but it actually happened. The Assyrians uh, were famous for this, as a matter of fact. Now, the imagery leaves no doubt that God is in control of these events. In His sovereignty and by His divine providence, God draws these enemies of Israel away from prior plans and down towards the promised land. Uh, They never make it to Jerusalem. We'll see that they're wiped out before they get close, uh, but that's the idea. Now, as you know, there's different hooks for different purposes. Fishermen use a variety of hooks. There's single hooks and treble hooks. And maybe I have never catch fish because I don't know which one you're supposed to use. You know, I just, I don't know. I don't ever know really what I'm even fishing for. I'm just on a lake. 
uh, and hey, that's a cool looking shiny, you know, lure. I'll just throw that thing out. Other guys are catching fish. Fish are jumping into their bucket, you know, because they figure they might as well commit suicide because they're going to go for it anyway. Uh, maybe that's the problem. So there's different hooks. Then there's all, all kinds of hooks. I mean, just, you know, you could probably have a hook store if you wanted to. You know, you've got hooks. You hang your bicycle on different types of hooks in the garage. And so what kind of hook will God use to draw this force down against Israel? Obviously, we can only speculate. We're not told. For many years, the prevalent speculation among students of Bible prophecy has been that oil and gas would be discovered in Israel and the northern coalition would then come down to destroy Israel wanting to claim her resources. Interestingly, vast oil and gas reserves have just recently been discovered in Israel. We've done a couple of prophecy updates on that where we referenced the uh, appropriate news articles. So that's been a theory. Uh, today there is different speculation that Gog and his forces will act towards Israel the way the United States acted toward Iraq, in a sense, uh, invading it to end an evil and achieve a greater purpose. In the case of Gog, it will be to destroy the non-Muslim influence in the region. And so, you know, just like uh, we led our allies into an invasion of Iraq saying, hey, this, this is, we have to deal with this, um, this is a problem, uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein is thumb, thumbing his nose at the free world. Uh, there's weapons of mass destruction. So we're going to go in and we're going to change the equation in Iraq. And we went in with our allies and did that. So there's, you, you, people have seen that and they say, well, maybe these uh, Muslim nations led by Russia will look down at Israel finally and say, we're going to have to change this equation once and for all. We're going to invade Israel, get rid of that influence and that threat so that we can have an entirely Muslim uh, region here. Uh, and, and that also makes sense. Now, the hook will undoubtedly be something we haven't considered, which will show us how much smarter God is than we are. And so those things are all speculative. They're based on, you know, uh, hey, we, this just happened, so maybe that's what's going to happen. And it's fun to talk about it, but God knows what he's doing. Critics of the literal futurist understanding of this passage point to the fact that the text says that the invaders will be horsemen riding on horses using weapons like swords and spears and shields. These are certainly not what we would expect given the current state of the military. One argument is that the invasion force was being described in terms Ezekiel could comprehend with the understanding that whenever this invasion took place in the future, the hostiles would be equipped with all the best modern weaponry of that era. One problem uh, with that explanation, and that it, the explanation can't account for, is that the weaponry is said to be burned for seven years after the battle. And we don't normally think of modern weapons of warfare fueling a bonfire. And so if you're not careful, we who take prophecy literally start to read it figuratively because we don't quite understand what it's saying. And so, oh yeah, this is a literal invasion, uh, but they're not really going to be on horses with spears and all of that. That's just figurative language. And you know what? That's actually possible. But another solution is the obvious one that this really is an invasion, mostly by cavalry literally on horseback. Now, hold your laughter. According to the American Museum of National History, 
And I quote, Though cavalry charges are now a thing of the past, there are still places where a horse is more useful than a truck. In 2002, for example, not that long ago, during the war in Afghanistan, some U.S. Special Forces rode horses in areas where the rugged terrain and lack of fuel made automobiles impractical. A 2006 web article just four years ago titled, Don't Hang Up Your Spurs Just Yet, stated, quote, Russia is turning over guarding sections of its border to newly reformed Cossack units. Now, the Cossack are famous horsemen uh, in Russia. Another snippet from the World Wide Web confirms that, stating, and again I quote, according to the press service of Russia's FSB Border Guards Division, in northern Ossetia, in each border region of the Republic, Terek Cossack detachments of up to 20 armed fighters each have been formed. After a quick training course, the Cossacks begin to protect the state border as part of the border detail. Following this thread, I came across these comments. Quote, For patrol and response in many parts of the continental United States, a horse-mounted infantry border guard force would make a lot of sense. Here's another quote. In Russia, where horsemanship is part of everyday life of many thousands of people, the Red Army is able to maintain one of the finest horse-mounted components in the world. Interesting to me that Russia is at the forefront of mounted cavalry and Russia takes the lead in this invasion, uh, which is spoken of as a cavalry invasion. A guy by the name of Randall Price has this to say. He says, there's no reason why these basic weapons might not be used in this future battle if the conditions or the stage of battle prevent the use of more advanced technology. Wars fought in certain rugged Middle Eastern terrains, such as the mountainous region of Afghanistan, have required modern armies to use horses, and bows and arrows continue to be employed in various combat arenas. In addition, if the battle takes place in the tribulation period... The conditions predicted for that time, such as seismic activity, meteor showers, increased solar effects, other cosmic and terrestrial catastrophes, would so disrupt the environment that present technology, depending on satellite and computer-guided systems, as well as meteorological stability, would utterly fail. Under such conditions, most of our modern weapons would be useless and more basic weapons would have to be substituted. <coughs> and so for now... I, for one, am taking Ezekiel's prophecy literally. I don't see any real problem with that. Uh, we always think in terms of what we see happening, what we would do, uh, what we think about modern warfare and all of that. And time after time, we've seen that God is not bound by our intellect. Uh, I, I mentioned over and over again, especially going through Ezekiel, the former Soviet Union. For years, we tried to figure out how the Soviet Union fit into Ezekiel, and it didn't really. And then we saw, literally overnight, the Soviet Union disband into all of the different, as Jacob calls them, the Stans, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, all of those, they all broke up into these different uh, areas. And, and then we see Ezekiel's prophecy literally. Uh, and so... When I read this and I think, well, it's imp there's not going to be this huge horse army with swords and spears and shields that comes down. That's ridiculous. I'm not sure that it's so ridiculous. 
especially with the catastrophic changes that take place even in the first half of the tribulation. And so, um, unless you have a better explanation, I'm just going to go with a literal approach uh, and uh, go that way. Uh, so let's move on. Verse 7, Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companions that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Scholars agree this is sanctified sarcasm. Gog and his forces are coming against God. How can they be ready? How can Gog be a guard for them? Uh, I mean, you know, it says, Gog doesn't realize that he's fighting God when he's fighting God's people. Uh, but, you know, if he did, you know, what, what kind of training regimen do you have to take on God? Uh, you know, it's, it's like a Rocky movie, you know, only, only you know, not. Uh, <laughs> you can train all you want and it's just going to be over in one punch. And it says, after many days, uh, verse 8, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. Now, if you're here for the first time uh, in our studies in Ezekiel, we've covered all eight of these verses in two separate studies and uh, done a lot of work with them. And so that's why we're kind of picking and choosing until we get down to verse 9 and we'll go verse by verse again. Uh, after many days, that is in the latter years, we established in previous studies, this is all future to us. No battle like this has ever taken place, uh, and, and so it is future still to us. We also described how only modern Israel, born in our own age, could fulfill the remaining descriptions of verse 8. We looked at the descriptions one at a time and saw that that was Israel. And we talked at length about the phrase, and now all of them dwell safely. We used it as a kind of litmus test to show that when this prophecy could and could not be fulfilled, concluding it must be at least sometime after the Antichrist enforces a peace treaty with Israel. It would seem that their living in peace has to do with this treaty that, is, uh, that Daniel talks about, that Paul talks about, that guarantees the Jews' safety so that they can rebuild their temple and reestablish sacrifice there. Uh, and though they, it doesn't say they don't have enemies, but they're guaranteed a protector and a, a time of peace. And it would seem that, you know, that future time is what we're talking about. Then in verse 9, you will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. It's a massive invasion force that breaks like a storm covering the land like a cloud. Lots of recent uh, theatrical uh, movies like Lord of the Rings have captured this kind of amazing imagery where you see these, these um, you know, huge uh, horse uh, cavalries coming uh, and attacking and stuff like that. And it's, it's fantastic. Verses 10 through 13 reveal the thoughts of the invaders. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. I discovered this week, just, this is just an aside, uh, it, the Hebrew language does not have a word for mind. It is the Hebrew labeb that has the basic meaning of the inner man or the heart. Uh, and so where a lot of times where the Bible translates mind, that's the intent, uh, but there's really not a word for mind. It means the inner man or the heart uh, where decisions are made. The, kind of the way we talk about the heart. You know, we get, uh, you know, what are you at heart? Uh, so anyway, just interesting. Uh, maybe you can win a bet with that. I don't know. 
you know, ask somebody what the Hebrew word for mind is and then say, you know, it's, it's like when you ask how many animals Moses brought on the ark. And the answer is none, because Noah brought animals on the ark. And I, that gets me every time. I almost tripped over it just now, as a matter of fact. Even though God puts a hook in God's jaw, he simultaneously attributes his behavior to God's own evil plan. God is sovereign. Man is free and responsible for his choices, always. You cannot really emphasize one over the other. We want to so badly. I don't know what it is about us that we want to emphasize one of those things over the other and then fight each other over it. Uh, you know, but uh, God is sovereign. He is the one who's going to put a hook in the jaw of God who leads these forces down but that same sovereign God is also able to say it is the evil plan of God. That's who's doing it. And, and you and I sit there and we think, how's that possible? How can it be fully God and fully man? And I just smile and say, it is. Uh, and, we, you know, and, and you get into trouble if you try and pick one over the other. Verse 11, you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages... I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. This has never been true of Israel and it is not true today. This is obviously future even to us. I've been suggesting again that it's only possible after the Antichrist guarantees Israel's peace in the region. Just imagine, really, the elation if a genuine, albeit tentative, peace could be achieved in the Middle East especially if it's guaranteed by a military defense agreement by a powerful force in the region. I mean, every United States president that I can remember has had a peace summit uh, at Camp David and, and they want to emerge saying that they finally, you know, achieve peace in the Middle East and, and none of them ever have. And uh, none of them will because that is, that is the purview of the Antichrist. And he will. He'll be a great uh, diplomat, a great leader, he will procure this peace. Uh, we believe that he'll be the head of a revived Roman Empire. And as we've done again in some of our prophecy updates, the revived Roman Empire is much more than Western Europe. It spans the entire length of the old Roman Empire through the Mediterranean uh, into Eastern Europe. It'll be a, a fantastic, powerful uh, force uh, that is guaranteeing the peace of that region. Uh, and um, it, it will be elation, there will be elation and, and wonder uh, as he brings that peace. Verse 12, he'll, you've come to take plunder and to take booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. They come to plunder and take booty. It sounds like the new Pirates movie. You know, they're, they're like, they're a bunch of pirates, but... Uh, uh, you know, it's because uh, some seafaring people are talking to them in verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take away great plunder? Okay, so who are Sheba and Dedan? Well, they're located in the modern country of Saudi Arabia. If we were writing this today, we would reference Saudi Arabia. Randall Price uh, locates Sheba as modern Yemen in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula and Dedan as Saudi Arabia. Regardless of their precise location on the Arabian Peninsula, 
there appears to be no doubt that it is a reference to the Saudis and perhaps some of the other Arab nations currently occupying that peninsula. <coughs> Tarshish is ancient Tartessus in the present-day nation of Spain. There does appear to be a significant historical basis to support the notion that the merchants of Tarshish are connected with the seafaring Phoenicians of about 3,000 years ago. Mark Hitchcock, who is a prophecy teacher we recommend, concludes, and I quote, Tarshish, or modern Spain, could be used by Ezekiel to represent all of the Western nations which Saudi Arabia will join with in denouncing this invasion. It's highly probable that Ezekiel used the far western colony of Tarshish to represent the end times empire of the Antichrist. Uh, we don't know. We know that at the time uh, Ezekiel wrote, it was a reference to the area of Spain and that part of Europe. Some people suggest that Tarshish is the United States. Uh, well, the merchants of Tarshish during the last 500 years developed into the modern mercantile nations of Western Europe like Spain and Holland and Britain. It's a stretch of enormous proportions to further identify Tarshish with the United States. Uh, it, and if, if it is, uh, it's kind of a secondary mention. Uh, it certainly indicates that we're not any kind of dominant nation at that time. Uh, I just don't... I wish I could in some ways, but I just don't see the United States mentioned in Scripture anywhere. Uh, and it doesn't do us any good to try and find it. Uh, it. We're just not there. Is Israel really all that wealthy? They're talking about coming down and are you going to spoil them? We suggest that maybe it's for oil and gas. Well, remember, this is looking into the future. But even now, we'd have to say that Israel is very well off. Thomas Ice writes and he says... There's no doubt that Israel is by far the richest country in the region. Today she has developed a productive economy via research and development in the area of technology. Also, she is perhaps the most productive country per capita in the world agriculturally. Israel has long controlled the diamond business and is the world leader in generic pharmaceuticals. So the next time you uh, complain about your pharmacy bill, uh, it's from Israel. Another quote, Israel is considered one of the most advanced countries in the Southwest Asia in economic and industrial development. It has the second largest number of startup companies in the world after the United States and the largest number of NASDAQ listed companies outside North America. And so there's a lot going on in Israel that we don't realize. A lot of wealth, a lot of forward thinking, a lot of those kinds of things. And so, and this is still future, so we don't even know uh, how much more advanced they're going to be. While we believe that this invasion will occur after we, the church, have been removed from the earth, it's fascinating to see it all setting up. Uh, and so I, I keep giving you the timeline uh, so that we understand. We live in what we call the church age. Uh, the church age is going to end in, with the event that uh, we call the rapture of the church. Jesus returns. He resurrects the dead in Christ, those believers of the church age who have died. He resurrects them. They're in their glorified bodies. Raptures living believers, which means to catch them off the earth. We're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, given our glorified bodies, caught up to heaven. Uh, then at some point after that, we're not saying the exact moment the rapture takes place, the tribulation begins. But after we're raptured, in some time proximity, 
this seven-year period of time called the Tribulation or the Great Tribulation begins. It actually begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. And then it's very specific from that point on, exactly three and a half years after that, uh, the Antichrist finds his way into the temple at Jerusalem. He declares that he is in fact God and he demands to be worshipped by all of his uh, citizens. Israel has to flee. Jesus said, man, if you're alive during that time, get out of town. Don't, grow, don't go back for your luggage. Woe to you if you have a nursing child. I mean, it's going to be rough. You're just going to have to get out of there because the greatest time of persecution against Israel that the world has ever known will begin. Uh, it's described as a great flood going out after Israel in the wilderness where they're having to hide and hole up. Three and a half years of literal hell on earth breaks out. Jesus said if he didn't come back, all human flesh would be destroyed by the end of that period of time. But he does come back after three and a half years at the end of the seven years. In the second coming, he uh, stops a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. All the armies of the world have gathered together to fight one another. They see Jesus coming and they say, hey, uh, we better join forces and fight against the Lord. He destroys them by the, just the, the mere brightness of his coming. Uh, then he establishes a thousand-year reign, a kingdom of God on the earth. Uh, at the end of that, there's a, another rebellion as human beings, even though they see Jesus and they see you and I in glorified bodies, uh, they rebel against the Lord because their hearts are still wicked. And uh, he puts that down, and then after that comes eternity. And so that's kind of the flow. And so what Ezekiel is talking about here is a battle that we believe takes place, obviously in the future to us, uh, could take place any time from now into the far future, but we see it fit most neatly into the mid part of the tribulation. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're talking about. And, and so it's fascinating to see all this set up. We talk a lot on Sunday mornings about uh, the nations that we identified in our first study and how they actually are lining up against Israel, uh, you know, Russia and Iran, which is Persia, and Libya and Turkey, parts of Turkey and uh, Sudan and all of these different nations that are lining up uh, against Israel in alliances with one another, uh, just as Ezekiel said they would 2,500 years ago. And it's pretty energizing knowing that the rapture could occur at any moment. Uh, still, uh, it's clear we're closer to it with every passing moment. And so the rapture is always imminent. Nothing has to happen before Jesus comes back for us. But every day that he doesn't, we're obviously closer to that event. And as we see all these things lining up, uh, it can't be long before this happens. I remember, you know, I've been saved uh, since 1979. And quite honestly, you know, uh, w when we first used to start studying prophecy back in the late 70s, early 80s, we, we had to stretch things a little bit. You know, we had to say, well, this isn't quite lining up the way we thought. Uh, but so maybe this is how it's going to work out, you know, and, and uh, we don't understand the Soviet Union. And well, now there's more than 10 nations in the Roman, you know, Confederacy. And so, you know, it was kind of difficult and you were speculating a lot. Now you just read the newspaper and, and it's lining up exactly the way God said it would. The exact nations uh, that he talked about. Uh, coming down against Israel are against Israel and they are aligning with and, and things like people say, well, Turkey, 
You, know, you say Turkey is one of those nations. They're a friend of Israel. They're Israel's ally. They're a friend of the West. And then almost overnight, here this year, in 2010, Turkey has turned against the West, turned against Israel, broken diplomatic ties, broken military ties, and is aligning itself with its Muslim uh, neighbors uh, and is, is on the warpath, really, against Israel. And so uh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, this, we're living not uh, in, in times that are really super anticipating what's going to happen. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God is on the move. Not so much Aslan, but God is on the move. Amen? Although there is a new Narnia movie coming out, so 